Hello and welcome to Thrill of the Hill. For the Farm Advisory Service, my name is Alec Perry and I'm thrilled to have you with us. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I speak with Stuart Brabs and Struan Candlish of the Ayrshire Rivers Trust about the importance of the water environment, the outlook for Scotland's water quality and what transformational change means at farm level to them. Hi guys, how you doing? Doing well, thanks. Thanks for having us, Alec. Good, good. Struan, this is your uh, your second time working with the Farm Advisory Service, so uh, so we'll, we'll hear a bit about that in a minute. But uh, can I just get both of you to give a bit of an introduction to, well, first of all, who you are, can you mention what your backgrounds are, and talk a little bit about the Ayrshire Rivers Trust and tell us what you do as a team and some of the things that you're working on at the minute? Sure. I'll, I'll let Stuart... Uh introduce the trust himself as Stuart as the trust manager. Okay, um, I'm Stuart Brabs. Uh, I, I'm the manager of Ayrshire Rivers Trust. I've been here for about 15 years now and uh, I thoroughly enjoy what we do but we never stop working, let's put it that way. We're always working on rivers and um, there's so much that we do. Uh, it's all about conservation and ecology and trying to improve water quality things like that that's where we focus our efforts and Struan's been with us for a few years I'll let you let you detail that sure so my introduction to the trust came 15 16 years ago now when I did my work experience at school with uh, the trust and from there I did a bit of volunteering over the years um, in between then and going to college and I had four years of studying countryside management and following that was quite fortunate to be able to walk into a job following a successful interview and that was seven years ago now and it feels like it was yesterday because whilst it's, it's busy and it's hard work we, we all of us are here because we love what we do and we're very passionate about the, the water environment and uh, the species that occupy it. And this will maybe sound like a bit of a loaded question, but in terms of geographical range, where do the Ayrshire Rivers Trust operate? Well, we operate right across the whole of Ayrshire, um, not just in rivers. We're also, we've got a keen interest in any freshwater body, so lochs, reservoirs, etc., um, particularly where there's um, native fish populations. But um, yeah, any any freshwater habitat in Ayrshire and, and sometimes beyond that, we, we often get asked, because we have specialist skills, we, we're asked to go and help further afield sometimes. Okay, so Struan, I mentioned at the very beginning that this is the second time that you've been working with the Farm Advisory Service. Um, the first time, I, I don't know if you remember it now, but was the, the Water Margin Management in a Changing Climate series. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, was that back in 2020? Yeah, I think it was, um, my memory was it was doing it from home, so it must have been during, during COVID, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it was shortly after we moved into a new house, so the whole place looked a bit of a bomb site. <laughs> well, it's good to good to have you back on. Can we just get kicked off um, by taking a broad look at things then? Why is the water environment so important to Scotland, and, and how is water quality um, in terms of how we compare to the rest of the UK? I think for us to say too much about how we compare necessarily against Scotland and the UK in a broader sense is maybe a little bit difficult, but 
one of the sort of stats that we looked at um, getting prepped for this was, you know, in the rubber basin management plan too, we had five of 14 of the most impacted catchments from diffuse pollution, whatever percentage that works out as, 30-something. So across Scotland, we our catchments were seen as quite highly impacted from diffuse pollution, um, certainly at that point. And whilst we have seen improvements being made across the board, um, there's still plenty of opportunities um, for further improvement. So the idea behind the podcast, guys, is that we discuss topics that are affecting sectors that are involved in the farmed upland environment. So where does water fit into the farmed upland environment and, and what function does it play? Upland water environments, obviously, uh, it's affect, the land use can affect water quality. It's as simple as that. And whether that's forestry, whether it's agriculture, all these things have a bearing about what happens within the water environment itself. Um, upland habitats tend to be more important for spawning areas, for, for migratory and resident species. Um, they tend to be the cleanest waters we've got because diffuse pollution, the way it works is that the further down a catchment you go, the more impact we see from diffuse pollution due to the cumulative effect. Uh, more farms, more land use, and more inputs. Uh, so by the time you get to the bottom of uh, river catchments, you tend to see um, the greatest impact from diffuse pollution. And that has an impact on the number of fish that are supported, uh, the quality of the habitat that is available. So. Looking that, taking that back to your question, the upland uh, reaches and the upper catchments are of most concern because that's where we rely on productivity to happen and the water quality to, to be the best. And in terms of some upland water catchments within Ayrshire, how are they looking right now? Are there any particular good cases or any concerns that you have? Well, I think. All upper catchments are better than lower catchments. We should start by saying that. It, there is just less inputs. Um, the problem we've got is on the likes of the River Air, where it's, it, the upper catchment is quite impacted, but that's not as a result of agriculture. That is, maybe there is a, a certain amount of agricultural inputs there, but there's also historic mining and more recently open-cast mining. And these things have a legacy that makes water quality or the challenges for fish and water quality quite difficult to to address some of the problems that, that still exist um, but on the whole I, th I think the upper catchments are encouraging um, the, the quality of water water quality is encouraging in the upper catchments um, but not always so uh, I think the upper urban has some major challenges um, and again, that's probably mainly uh, driven by, by land use and farming. From the perspective of the Ayrshire Rivers Trust, when we're talking about the water environment, do you look at it from the natural capital perspective and, and drought and uh, water availability, or is the focus more on conservation as the, the key priority? I think the focus is... Uh... Is split between the two because without the uh, requisite amount of water to support these uh, animals, then 
they're not going to exist in these places. And <clears throat> in some of the upper catchments, okay, we, we see extended drought periods more and increasingly um, as climate change has a, a bigger bearing on things. And we have data loggers throughout the river air catchments, um, part of the Scottish River Temperature Monitoring Network, which is uh, a series of loggers across the catchment which um, records water temperature at 15-minute intervals. So this gives us a very good, accurate picture of uh, water temperatures over the course of a year, the peaks, the, the highs, the lows, um, and the mediums. And on the Luger side of the river air, in the very upper catchment there, then we have a temperature logger that routinely finds temperatures getting 25, 26 degrees um, water temperature uh, when, during the summer. Now that's really getting into the the, the lethal range for salmon if they've got uh, a good length of exposure to that water temperature. So, And that kind of goes back to the previous question there about uh, land use and impacts. Um, there are very few trees in the upper catchment there on the Luger side. And because of that, there's very little shading. And these things are really now starting to have quite a significant impact on uh, fish mortality and fish production. And some of the most productive, best, best quality in-stream habitats that are. But in-stream is only part of the equation. Um, we deal with trying to improve riparian habitat as well. Uh, really, we look at when we're talking about management of rivers, we're talking about management of entire catchments. It's far more holistic than just saying it's a, it's a single body of water and what happens beyond the bank tops uh, is of little consequence. It actually it has just as much consequence for the water environment as what the inputs are quite often. I, th- I think that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier diffuse pollution from agriculture in the upper catchments. Actually, it's about habitat as much as anything because if you get the habitat right the riparian habitat can help protect uh, uh, against diffuse pollution it can soak up or, or use up nutrient that's being lost from land on the riparian margins we can grow trees that will help defend against predicted temperature increases that are you know i think they're protecting it even up to four four de- uh, no sorry one degree in the next 50 years um, well, like Struan was saying there, the, the upper Glenmuir and the t- at the top of the Luger catchment, if we get a one degree rise up there, chances are we will lose salmon from there. And that's the traditional salmon spawning ground. So <clears throat> we need to find ways to um, protect uh, both against temperature and uh, agricultural inputs, but to uh, Certainly, it's it's about land management. It has to be land management that that adapts here to allow these species to survive, um, and that that's what we try and focus on. It, it's it's just by necessity that we have to change the way things farm, or else we're going to lose species, and we're going to lose them big time. And these are iconic species that are they're keystone species in the Scottish environment, and if we start losing salmon, like could happen very quickly here the way things are going um i think that's a huge loss to society it's a huge loss to biodiversity and and what's next if we don't start doing something we all know we need to to do stuff we need to do it now um and that's what we're encouraging and that's what we try to deliver you mentioned um salmon a couple of times there stuart 
how important are salmon as an indicator species of water quality? Is Are salmon a species that you have a particular interest in when it comes to assessing the quality of water? Well, yeah, salmon salmon are an indicator species, but so are so are trout. Just equally so, you know, salmon and trout um, are native and rely on having clean, cool waters to to thrive. Uh, and we've seen on all the Ayrshire rivers. I mean, like I said, I've been here fifteen years. These species are in decline. Um, trout seem to be holding their own at the moment. Uh, but salmon certainly are in decline. And I wouldn't for one minute suggest that's just to do with pressures within the freshwater environment. There's also major issues going on at sea. Um, and that's largely beyond our control or, or our ability to influence. But um, in the freshwater environment, we have an opportunity to try and address the problems that we are aware of. Um, and the, the problems we identify and, and research all the time. We're looking to try and find out where all the problems lie so that we can then prioritise action to, to make things better. But that really involves working with landowners. It has to. There's no way around that because we don't own the land. So in your experience, how do you think farmers treat the water environment? Um, and, and if historically it's been poorly, do you get the sense that that's changing? Um, yes, I think things are changing. Um, I wouldn't say all farmers treated the water environment poorly, by no means. Uh, I think some had more concern than others, and that probably comes from um, understanding, understanding how land use impacts rivers and water quality and the ecology. but. There's been a lot of PR and a lot of discussion about these things. It's in the press all the time. And I do think that, that landowners and farmers understand more now that they do influence what what's there. And so what do you think is the biggest threat to the condition of our upland water bodies that, that farmers could be looking to take action against? What would make a real difference to, to you guys? I think um, one of the projects we've been involved in the last over the last few months was um, a Nature Scott funded project through the Nature Restoration Fund, which was in Wellwood area in the upper rubber area near, near Kirk. Um, one of the big issues there, if we just take this as a sort of bit of a case study for a, a moment, because it kind of touches on all the, the, the kind of relevant points that we see impacting uh, upland water courses. One, it had been historically altered, morphological alterations um, had been straightened, um, banks had been levied. So you've got a river that's somewhat disconnected from its floodplain. It's no longer in its original course. So you're starting to see a river trying to get back to a more natural state and, and doing so is causing erosion. There's a trade-off between allowing the river to find its... Uh, to allowing the river to breathe, essentially, and find its, uh, get back to something more like a natural course. But in allowing it to do that to too much to too degraded a degree, what happens you have massive releases of silt over the what we just talked about, the, the upper reaches being very important spawning areas and with a species that's in decline and very much under a lot of pressure. It's a, there's a trade-off between allowing the river to find its own space but also reducing the amount of silt and diffuse pollution essentially that's um, covering the spawning beds. So 
in this instance, we took an approach where we refenced the area. Um, some good sized buffers in there. There was tree planting to try and uh, provide some shading, um, leaf litter, nutrient input um, over the coming years, and look to steady the banks as best we could with green engineering techniques, using a variety of green engineering techniques where the worst of the erosion was. But at the same time, we're being sympathetic to other um, wildlife that's in the area. And some of these eroding banks had sand martens in them, and that's that's um, sections of river bank that we, we leave entirely alone in love because that's valuable habitat for another species. So it take, we're, takes it away from being just about what's happening in the water. I mean, we're trying to improve the habitat permeability in the upland areas because there was a large area disconnected there through lack of woodland. Um, so we planted upwards of 2,000 trees um, various sort of native species you'd find in that kind of area. Um, so all those things um, help help sort of alleviate the pressures and given given some time uh, we'll be able to report back with some really positive uh, outcomes there. I'm pretty sure it's been it's been a really good project to be involved in. But uh, we're now looking to try and expand that as much as possible because Whilst we worked over a few kilometres there, there's still there's still a lot of land up, upstream that could benefit from similar types of work, and similarly, there's work that could, uh, could happen downstream. But it all comes down to resource and funding, and it's not always easy to get that. Yeah. So I, can I just add add to what Strun was saying there, Alex? It's managing the water environment starts with managing the water margins and, and and yes historically we've changed so much in in scotland in all our rivers um actually in Ayrshire, very few sections of river are natural now but we what we're trying to do is restore natural function and processes that's what strun was saying there is it's about trying to get the river back as healthy as possible and as natural as possible. But uh, that takes a sympathetic approach where it, not just from, uh, we need landowners to, to understand that um, we need to protect these areas and we can help, we can, ha we can advise, we can actually do work at times. And, and what we try to do is just to, to, to reduce the problems while recognizing the landowners or the farmers need for uh, you know to conserve and save their land too because at Wellwood there was huge areas being lost huge areas and we've seen that in middle Gurban as well where thousands of tons of prime quality agricultural land was disappearing down a river so finding finding the solution to this benefits fish benefits farmers it benefits biodiversity, and it's it's a sort of holistic approach to putting things right. And the, the bigger the scale we can work on, the greater the benefit we can we can bring. And what was it you liked in particular about the Nature Restoration Fund? It's a fairly new scheme. I think last year was its was its first year um, of of being open to to new applications. Um, well, it, it was a funding it was a funding option that we 
we had a project ready to go on. It wasn't designed for that fund. It just so happened we had a project there um, at Wellwood that was was ready to go, and they needed they, they had quite a short um, window for applications. Um, the Wellwood project came about because I was approached by one of the landowners who'd lost some sheep in a flood when the river burst its banks. He was having real problems up there, uh, and he couldn't. He didn't think he could tackle it, and he wasn't willing to tackle it and run into problems with SEPA. So he approached me five years ago, and it took me that sort of length of time to find a suitable fund to allow this project to happen. Um, okay, we then widened it slightly and included his a neighbour on the opposite bank. And that, that, that's great benefit because you're working in both banks. So uh, there's a sort of joined up approach to, to making this work and, and benefit to both landowners. But um, yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't necessarily the Nature Restoration Fund that was uh, the appeal. It just so happened um, it came along at the right time. And many of the, the or so many of the, the aspects of this project tick boxes within the Nature Restoration Fund that they were willing to fund it. I think from a funding perspective, um, quite often we need to focus on community engagement within projects and that has a lot of value as well. But sometimes the the main thrust of the project has to be it's the environment, it's the riparian corridors, the catchment that we're really f- focused on. Bringing in volunteers as a great consequence of that, but it's not the driver necessarily for us um, in making work or uh, and making work happen like that. And the Nature Restoration Fund, whilst we had quite a few volunteers as part of it, and involved in building brash bundles, planting trees, um, installing brash, whole host of different things. But the Nature Restoration Fund was about actually delivering on the ground works and. That was that's really important for us. Um, we spend quite a lot of time trying to acquire funding to make these projects happen, and uh, we've got to make compromises sometimes in terms of how we would deliver projects and the timeframes, etc., and who we work with to get that funding because we recognise that without doing these things, we won't ever achieve all the things that we set out to achieve. And actually, the outcomes on the ground are the most important thing. But I think it's important to emphasise that we don't write projects to get funding. We develop projects and then seek funding. That's that's the way it works. It's not that there's funding, let's try and tailor make something here or adjust something that we want to do just to get the funding. It's not about that. We have to have the benefit. We have to have. It's got to tick our boxes. It has to tick our boxes for us to go for it because we're the ones that are left responsible for delivering it and in the nature restoration project, it's there's ten years maintenance. I mean, it's not it's not a small undertaking we've taken on here. Um, and I I wouldn't I wouldn't go for a project unless I firmly believed one hundred percent that it was the right thing to do. Um, and finding suitable funding can be incredibly difficult. So, a a lot of projects that we come up with never happen. I mean, there's a lot of ideas here, and we just hope and wait for. Uh, perhaps better funding opportunities to come along. One of the things that really directs us in terms of um, project building is fishery management plans or catchment management plans. 
And for the district salmon fishery boards that exist across here, so which are not four of in the, the AR, the Dune, the Governance, Dinshaw, they either have a they either have a fishery management plan or we're in the process of creating a management plan for them. So that's that's the type of document and the type of uh, information that goes into building these projects because we have these documents prioritise across their catchment the work that needs to happen and the thing, kind of timescales we're looking at trying to deliver this over. A lot of that is very difficult to do because of the, the funding mechanisms, but that's a lot of the that's where the drive comes from behind it. I think, I think with us being around for over 20 years, we're 22 years established now, and we've done a heck of a lot of um, monitoring and research in those 22 years. We know where the pressures are within the Ayrshire catchments. Um, we get consultants who phone us up looking for advice or whatever. We know, we know the answers. We know our rivers, and we know them incredibly well. We know the detail of where where's productive, where's underproductive, where's polluted, um, where where have got invasive invasive species. You know, we we've looked at so many aspects over many years, uh, and I'm very focused on developing the trust um, much more. Um, into a delivery organisation rather than a monitoring uh, organisation. We, we've done the monitoring. We've done the, the research. Let's get on and do the, 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 the delivery now. And I, I think working with landowners, working with other agencies, um, that's how we can make a difference now. It's, we, don't need to, we don't need to research. We always must monitor to make sure nothing's changing and, and slipping by that we don't notice. But um, I think we've got a very, very good understanding of where things are failing and how to improve them. Uh, and really the, the driver for us is now to get improvement happening on the ground. And where where can farmers engage with you? Where can we go to find out more about the Wellwood project? And can farmers reach out to you guys? And, and how would that work? Absolutely. Um, we welcome any anybody that wants to speak to us about how to manage our water environments better, we are delighted to go and see them. Um, they can find us online if they type in Ayrshire Rivers, you will find the Ayrshire Rivers Trust is the first hit. Um, we've got social media, we've got our own website. Um, I think Muir's quite active at Twitter. They, I'm quite sure if, if you if, if there's a desire to find us, people will find us. There's no problem there. Um, and you phone the office or send us an email and one of us will get by to you. So you can find those contact details in the show notes below. All the work that we're involved in, um, be it Wellwood or Garner Connections projects, we're fairly regular updating our, our blog and the, the website and Facebook and Twitter and uh Okay, well, these projects now we've produced kind of short videos sort of describing what it is we're doing, some of the issues we're seeing and how we're addressing them. And those are normally available um, on Facebook and YouTube as well. So and most of the social media outlets there where people can find more information about a lot of the projects that actually we've been talking about this afternoon. And you could join the Trust and become a member and get our regular newsletters as well. Um, I think I think it's only fifteen pounds to join the trust and support the work we do. So it's it's not a lot of money, but uh, you get regular newsletters and stuff like that from us. It shows exactly what we've been up to. 
And you mentioned earlier on in the podcast, um, you referenced SEPA. How do you guys interact with SEPA or do you? I mean, what, what, how does that work? Um, we have uh, extensive dealings with SEPA. Um, SEPA are the regulator in Scotland, obviously. Um, it, that's, it's their responsibility to ensure compliance with regulations. Our responsibility is to highlight problems to SEPA. Our responsibility is to 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 respond to requests from SEPA to us to give them information about what's happening in rivers, where they're failing, uh, where fish populations are failing, where erosion's a problem. Um, they have their own specialists within there, but they cover the whole of Scotland. So they've got a small team. We've got a small team, but local. And it's it's very very much more detailed knowledge on the ground that we have, and we support SEPA. I think they support us in some ways. We have differences. <laughs> um, naturally, we 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 sometimes feel a bit frustrated by trying to get a regulator to to move as quickly as we would like. But you know, we all work together. I think for the greater good of the water environment. Um, we also work with Marine Scotland and Nature Scott. So the, the, it's a multi-sort of partner, our stakeholder approach. Uh, and I think we've all got our place and we all work well together. And although you guys are the Ayrshire Rivers Trust, presumably there are other rivers trusts throughout Scotland that you guys engage with. Yeah, there's a, a network of trusts across the, across all of Scotland. Uh, I think there's 26, 27 of our trusts uh, cover the the bulk of Scotland, and yeah, we work. Um, we work with a lot of other uh, trusts. Then we work hand in hand with all the district salmon fishery boards. There's four district salmon fishery boards in Ayrshire. There's forty one across Scotland, and they're statutorily empowered um, to represent fishery interests. Uh, and they they work on behalf of the owners of the rivers. So yeah, where there's salmon, there are there are other people that we have to deal with and that anybody making changes to the river should be dealing with. So, uh, yeah, I think the District Salmon Fishery Boards, SEPA and the others, they all have their part to play here. Everyone has different skills and spheres of uh, knowledge and we, if we need to draw on those uh, those areas of expertise, then we've got a great network across the, the country that can uh, help us do that. And uh, so... If you guys had a crystal ball, where do you see the water environment in Scotland being in the next 10 years? Are we on a good trajectory or, or are there things that need to be addressed that farmers should be aware of? Um, I think we're I think we're improving. Um, we're on the right course, but I think speed is of, of the essence here. Um, I'd like to see better water margin management, to be honest. Um, it's not something that's universally popular. Um, we talk about fencing. Um, not all farmers want to fence their fields. I understand that. It's a very expensive process. It's difficult because you've got to maintain it and beside rivers, that can be difficult. But with the right fencing going in, it makes a huge difference. You won't grow trees on river banks. Um, and stop erosion and protect riverbanks unless you've got livestock exclusion or, as we like to prefer to call it, it's livestock management. 
nobody's saying you can't graze your water margins, but it's got to be done sensitively. It's got to be done um, not constantly. It's got to be periodic, and it's not to be damaging. Um, rubber banks, believe it or not, I, I mean, a lot of people say to me, oh, sheep's not a problem, it's the cows. Actually, sheep can be just as much of a problem because they graze the sword so much harder than, than cattle do. Um, it's it's getting a balance. It's keeping everything in balance. And if we can manage water margins and allow a, a managed grazing regime, it will allow better a function in rivers. It will reduce erosion and it will bring what better water quality. That's where I would like to see it going. And I know there's a cost involved in that. And I would like to see more grant funding available for water management fencing and for planting. Uh, riparian margins riparian margins are essential if we're going to have iconic species like salmon in future. And, and really, the further south you go, the bigger the threat is to them at the moment. Alec, you sent me something through a few months back, which was a type of sort of virtual fencing, which involved cows with a, a, a vibration-emitting sort of sensor on their, around their neck. Where do you see that going in the in future years? Because if fencing, with no fencing's expensive materials, everything, the cost of everything is rising at the moment. So is, is that something you see as a... A sensible way forward is where's the technology at so uh yeah th- this is this is a really good question um and i wish our editor malcolm mcdonald um uh, was with us right now uh, malcolm and i discussed the issue of virtual fencing two years ago on the podcast and we're hoping to get him back on in the back end of this year for a bit of an update my understanding of virtual fencing is that there are various groups trialing it across scotland currently the cost is prohibitive, particularly for upland sheep guys, um, but it can work with, with cattle. It's interesting that you mentioned the issue of fencing because obviously fencing comes with a huge capital cost. But I think where the opportunity is with virtual fencing is that, okay, you're paying an awful lot for the equipment and the collar, um, but can you offset some of the costs of your, your fencing and your wires and your netting um, that you would otherwise have to pay for? Um, yeah, I, I think I think there's probably huge potential out there for, for things like virtual fencing um, down the line. I don't think that we're quite there yet, and maybe that's something that uh, we can uh, we can follow up on in the next podcast. I'm quite, I'm quite sure technology will move forward quick enough to allow these things to become more affordable and, uh, and more efficient in future. I mean, it wasn't long ago I was saying if somebody could solve the, the problem of coupling a trailer lights to a vehicle and they're so poor, that the connections are so poor and water gets into it, now you get Bluetooth. You Bluetooth your lights to the, to the vehicle. There's no wire there and it works. That's just come in the last few years and the, the cost's coming down. I'm quite sure technology and the advances we see in technology will will mean that the virtual uh, fencing is a is a realistic option yeah i think one of the takeaways that people will take away from our perspective is that if we could do one thing and wave a magic wand we'd fence every water course in the yeah. airshot and that in itself would bring around big changes couple that with um 
tree planting and a lot of the job would be done in terms of freshwater environment. Um, there are other um, more nuanced uh, parts to that, but water it's margin... Single, it's the single biggest action that can make a difference. Yeah, if we could get water margins um, managed better in, in that regard, then I think we would start to see some, some real changes in the freshwater environment. That said, um, going back to a previous question, we talked about salmon as an indicator species. And while salmon maybe aren't the best indicator species of the freshwater environment because there's so many other factors at play um, during the oceanic part of their life cycle, trout, on the whole, spend the majority of their life in freshwater, except for sea trout, which muddy the waters a little bit because of the same species that go from freshwater to sea and then come back for the purpose of spawning. But trout, on the whole, are doing quite well across most water courses. Uh, in Ayrshire, so I think that's quite a that's a good that's a good spot to be in because if even if we lost salmon entirely, which is not the the goal here at all, but we ought to be able to monitor trout populations to see them thrive in the absence of competition from another species. Um, I think one of the things is that the trout are doing well, perhaps because of the declines in the salmon, because where salmon and trout coexist salmon are always the dominant species yeah that's that's known that's well documented but um we are seeing an increase in the trout population in the river air particularly at the moment a real good increase is that due to declining salmon populations i hope not i i believe it's more to do with improved water quality um time will tell and we keep looking at these things but uh, yeah there are two species there that are very good indicators that we should be looking at. Farmers and crofters are being told by Scottish government that we need to see transformational change in the face of the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. What does transformational change mean to the Ayrshire Rivers Trust? I think it touches on a lot of things we just talked about in terms of uh, how we manage water margins, uh, riparian areas, because um, it's not just about getting a fence up and um, trees in there. Because in large sections of the water of Garvin and the Stinshire, there are areas that are fenced and they have what well, at a casual glance looks like a, a good set of mature trees along the river banks. But actually, some of those fences are a bit dilapidated. Um, and what's not happening there is you've not got a, a generation of trees coming up behind. So you've got a generation of trees that once those are lost and we're losing a lot of um, ash to, to die back at the moment, there's going to be large chunks of the countryside look vastly different to what they do right now. Um, and that's a lot of that's to do with the fact we've not got that next generation of trees coming on. I think it's also about asking what what is valuable to society. What is valuable or what should be valuable to landowners and farmers um, it's not just about fish for us. It's about reconnecting species um, and the, their habitat with with their habitat, giving them connectivity along river banks, ensuring that the banks are in good condition, that the the habitat on the banks are in good condition. That means your biodiversity, uh, all species are thriving. We keep hearing about the loss of pollinating insects and bees. Uh, and farming has been implicated in that, and I, I, I don't want to get into the 
the, the the details of that too much. I don't have I, my main concern is for riparian margins, but a lot can be done for um, pollinating insects by slight changes in farming practices. Part of what we sowed on the the the, the, the riparian areas at Wellwood was not just seed to get grass seed growing back on bare riverbanks. We also sowed uh, wild wild seed for birds uh, or wild bird seed and bumble mix or something like that. You know, there was there was different species of plant seeds we sowed. It wasn't just grass. Don't just vegetate it. Let's get wild flowers back in there. Let's get uh, species that are good for birds. Let's look at the whole um, uh, issue of biodiversity improvement. And I think that's what the government's driving for now. And I think that's absolutely right because there are so many species in decline. Uh, I'm 50 years old and in, in my lifetime, I've seen huge declines in the countryside. I think we all have. But species, given a chance, will come back. We've seen that in the otters. The otters were severely impacted in the 70s by pesticides. Um, those pesticides were banned. And now we've got otters thriving all over Scotland. The River Ayr, River Doon, wherever you go, if you if you look in the, the river banks and these river the local rivers, there's no shortage of otters. Uh, and that's a wonderful story because 30, 40, 50 years ago, they were in critical decline. Um, so things can turn around and turn around quickly given the chance. We just need to give all species a chance. I think uh, or I hope one of the positive outcomes of COVID was that people found themselves walking in the countryside on, on riverbanks far more than they ever were before. And I mean, at that time, I was living on the banks of the River Air. And it used to be you go for a walk, and even in a lovely afternoon, you wouldn't see another soul. But the river became quite busy with people. And I hope that uh, one of the outcomes of that was that people started to appreciate the sort of natural capital, if you will, that uh, exists on our doorsteps, and that they they did get a bit more invested in their, you know, their local natural history. Because they, they would have seen otters, they, they would have seen kingfishers, herons, they've seen fish rising in the surface. And I think all of that at a time where people's morale was pretty low, hopefully it was a boost and hopefully they haven't lost sight of that now that we're emerging from the other side of the pandemic. So I do hope that was one of the sort of more positive outcomes and that that sort of social investment will lead to greater financial investment from government or other grant makers to allow us to protect these um, places better. And just winding down the podcast now, guys, I know that you're busy and I don't want to take up too much of your time this afternoon, but I ask this to everybody who comes on the podcast, what have you seen lately in the industry? What good or innovative practices have you seen that you want to spotlight, that you want to draw people's attention to? Um, I, I think um, we, we're seeing improved a timing for slurry spreading and things like that. We, I mean, this all helps. Everything helps uh, if we if we can if we can get the slurry going on to the fields at the right time, recognising and respecting the buffers. Uh, we still see failures in that respect, but less so. We used to see it all the time. 
very rarely now do, do we see spreading within 10 metres or cultivated within two metres of a bank top. I think just generally um, agricultural practices are improving. Um, but uh, every one of them makes a difference uh, to the water environment. And of course, that's where, where our focus is. But uh, I think things on, on the whole are improving. And I think um, as far as the water environment is concerned, it's not necessarily about any one uh, practice or changing practices that will make huge impacts with the exception of perhaps fencing. But to borrow one of our colleague Muir's phrases, it was sort of death by a thousand cuts. And any little bit of good practice in favour of something that was less favourable uh, will make a will make a little difference, and all those little differences, just like a thousand cuts, will ultimately add up, and hopefully, we'll have a far better outcome at the end of it all. Brilliant. Well, um, on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, um, thanks both of you for for coming on. It's been really good to sit down and have this discussion. It's been nice to to work with you again, Struan, and uh, hopefully we, we hear from you again in the future. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe, and follow our podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our contact details at the bottom of our show notes. You may also enjoy some of our other podcasts, such as CropCast, our monthly show providing advice, updates, and scientific insight into crops and soils, or Stock Talk, our monthly panel show providing timely updates and advice for livestock producers. Join us again next month for our next episode of Thrill of the Hill. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.